Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. This morning we're going to be concluding the Sermon on the Mount and looking at verses 24 to 27. But I want to read for us from verse 13 again of chapter 7 all the way to verse 27 just for the sake of context. From verse 13 to 27, these are Jesus' concluding remarks in the Sermon on the Mount. So verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear good, uh, good sorry, a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. And not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and, and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Amen. I, um, my niece, Karis, has a cousin whose name is Isabel. And when she was about two and a half or three years old, one day her mother, Erica... Um, was having, well, just frustration with her because she wasn't obeying. And so Erica said to Isabel, the two-and-a-half-year-old, Isabel, you're not listening to me. At which Isabel, at two-and-a-half, responded, No, Mama, I am listening to you. I'm just not obeying you. Now that illustration, I think, captures an important truth. It's possible to listen even be attentive to what one is hearing and yet not respond rightly to what one is hearing. And that's what we see in Jesus' final words in the Sermon on the Mount. Throughout the sermon, we've seen Jesus articulating this whole person righteousness. That is where the, the inner and outer parts of a person are united together. This whole person righteousness that leads to true human flourishing, both in this life and the life to come. 
And it's this righteousness that his disciples, by the Holy Spirit, are to strive for and live by. He's calling his followers to follow him and his ways. And his ways are are articulated within the Sermon on the Mount. This is the righteousness that exceeds that of the religious leaders, which he tells us is necessary for his followers to enter the kingdom of heaven. See, we've seen that Jesus isn't merely concerned about external obedience to the law, but rather that his followers become a certain kind of people, whole, virtuous, wise people whose souls are in harmony with their external actions. Which that prayer by Socrates, which I quoted two sermons ago, captures so well, give me beauty in the inward soul May the outward and the inward man be at one. This is what Jesus is articulating in the Sermon on the Mount. That we have beauty in the inward soul and that the outer and inner part of ourselves be in harmony with one another. You see, Jesus isn't just concerned about our external actions, but our internal motives. The reasons for why we do the things we do. This has been what the Sermon on the Mount is ultimately about. Jesus is presenting himself as a prophet or sage, a teacher of wisdom, and he's calling his followers to follow him and his ways. Now, I had mentioned in my very first sermon on the Sermon on the Mount that the sermon can can be presented as wisdom literature, similar to that of the Psalms or Proverbs that Murray read for us this morning. Jesus is instructing his followers in the way of wisdom, but he's also teaching us about the way of folly. Which is why it's no surprise that in the final words of Jesus here in verses 24 to 27, he calls his followers to be wise. To be wise. And he does this by giving us a parable. Now remember, from verses 13 to 27, he's giving his concluding remarks And what he has done is use three different images to call his people to respond rightly. In each image, there are two ways. The way that leads to life and the way that leads to death. The first image is the imagery of the wide and narrow gate and the easy and hard way. One leads to life, the other death. In the second image, he presents us two kinds of prophets. There is the false prophet and the true prophet, and the distinction between them is determined by the one who does the will of God. Now, in both of these images, Jesus gives two exhortations. The first image, he commands us to enter the narrow gate. The second image, he commands us to beware of false prophets who will attempt to lead us from the narrow gate and the hard way. Now, in the last image, there is no explicit exhortation, but the exhortation is implied from the parable itself. Just as he tells us to enter the narrow gate, here in verses 24 to 27, he's calling us to be wise. For to be wise leads to true flourishing, as we shall see. 
But we need to ask, what does it look like to be wise according to Jesus? Well, it's here where he provides this parable to demonstrate who the wise are and what they are like, and also who the foolish are and what they are like. And just like with the wide gate and the narrow gate, Jesus is presenting only two ways. Again, there's no middle ground with Jesus. It's either this way or that way. You are either wise or foolish, according to Jesus. So what's the determining factor for what makes someone wise or someone foolish? Who are the wise and who are the foolish? Well, the one who is wise is the one who lives according to Jesus' wise instruction. The wise man is the one who lives according to Jesus' wisdom. Look at verse 24. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them. That's key. They do his words. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The one who is wise, according to Jesus, is the one who hears his words and he does them. That is, he takes Jesus' words and begins to put them into practice as any true follower would do. He's not merely a hearer, but a doer. Now that word translated as wise is an important word in the Greek virtue tradition and in Matthew's gospel. As Pennington states, in the virtue tradition, this term refers to the one who has learned through practice. That's important. They have learned through practice to live prudently with discernment and who not only knows the truth but acts upon it. These are the people that Jesus considers to be wise. They hear his words and they have learned through practice to live according to them. They don't just articulate the truth, they live according to the truth. They've developed the proper habits that reflect Jesus' teaching. Now, he compares those who live according to his words with that of a builder who builds his house on the rock. That is, he has built his house upon a firm foundation so that when the storms come, the house doesn't fall, as he says in verse 25, because it was founded upon the rock. So this is who the wise are. The wise are those who hear Jesus' words and do them, put them into practice. But who are the foolish? Who are the foolish? Well, the foolish man is simply the one who rejects the teachings of Jesus. Verse 26 tells us who the foolish are. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. So the foolish are those who also hear the words of Jesus, but unlike the wise, they disregard his words. They may hear his words, but they don't respond in obedience to his words. They have no intention of living according to his words. They hear them, but they do nothing with them. Now here, the comparison 
is also with a builder, but this builder chooses to build his house upon the sand. That is, he lays the foundation of the home upon the sand, and though the house looks no different than the house that was laid on the rock, when the storm comes, the strength or the weakness of the house is revealed. The builder has not laid the house upon a solid foundation, and therefore when the storm comes, the house falls. It can't withstand the beating of rain, the floods, and the wind. And Jesus says, the one who hears my words and does not do them is like that kind of builder. He's a fool. A fool. So the wise are those who hear Jesus' words and live by them. The foolish are those who hear Jesus' words and disregard them. Thirdly, the wise are able to overcome any storm, including the storms of judgment, whereas the foolish are overcome by many storms, including the storms of judgment. Let me say that again. The wise are able to overcome any storm, including the storms of judgment, whereas the foolish are overcome by many storms, including the storms of judgment. The wise are those who hear and do what Jesus has said. The foolish are those who hear and disregard what Jesus has said. Now, both, according to the parable, build a house. But one house is able to withstand the storms, while the other house is unable. And it's based upon the foundation the house was built upon. The one rock, the other sand. And Jesus is making it very clear that those who hear his words and do them are the kind of people that are able to endure and stand in the midst of the hardships of this life. Whereas those who, who disregard his words are overcome by the hardships of this life. Now, when Jesus uses this imagery of the storm, I think there are two ideas being conveyed here. The first is the storms are a metaphor for just the basic hardships of this life, the sufferings of this life that we all experience in different ways and to different degrees. And Jesus is saying that those who live, in, live, live according to his teachings and follow him are able to endure the horrors of this life. It doesn't mean that it's not painful, exhausting, sorrowful, but that in the end, the house won't fall no matter how heavy the beating gets. I've seen this in many of your lives. I've seen some of you take a beating in this life, and it hasn't been easy. There's been points in which you've wanted to throw in the towel, moments of despair, and yet I've seen many of you in the midst of all of that still standing. Maybe with a limp, but still standing. Even a house built on a solid foundation, when the storm comes, will take a beating. Will have scars. But it still stands. And I've also seen professing Christians who have also taken a beating from this life. And at some point, the wind and the rain became too much. And the house fell. And they're no longer standing. 
And in one sense, we could say, if not for the grace of God, I would be the latter. And that's true. But we can also say the reason some are still standing and others are not is because some have heard the voice of Jesus and have done what he says and others did not. It's really that simple. So one, the metaphor of the storm is a metaphor for the hardships of life, but I also think it's more than that. I think this metaphor of the storm is also a picture of God's final judgment. And here's why I think this. There are several biblical texts that use the image of a flood and rising waters to demonstrate God's judgment. The most obvious, of course, is Genesis 6-7, to the great flood with Noah. But there are other passages as well. Jeremiah 23, 19 says this, Behold the storm of the Lord. Wrath has gone forth. A whirling tempest. It will burst upon the head of the wicked. Or Ezekiel 13, 10-16, which is in the context of false prophets. And I actually think Jesus here, in these words in the Sermon on the Mount, is alluding to Ezekiel 13, 10-16. Listen to these words. Precisely because they have misled my people, that is the false prophets, saying peace when there is no peace, and because when the people build a wall, these prophets smear it with whitewash, say to those who smear it with whitewash that it shall fall. There will be a deluge of rain, and you, O great hailstones, will fall, and a stormy wind break out. And when the wall falls... Will it not be said to you, where is the coating with which you smeared it? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will make a stormy wind break out in my wrath and there shall be a deluge of rain in my anger and great hailstones in wrath to make a full end. And I will break down the wall that you have smeared with whitewash and bring it down to the ground so that its foundations will be laid bare. When it falls, you shall perish in the midst of it. You shall know that I am the Lord. Thus will I spend my wrath upon the wall and upon those who have smeared it with whitewash. And I will say to you, the whale is no more, nor those who smeared it. The prophets of Israel who prophesied concerning Jerusalem and saw visions of peace for her where there was no peace, declares the Lord God. So there's imagery of storms and water and rain in the Old Testament in reference to God's judgment. The other reason this metaphor, I think, is more accurately pointing us to the final judgment is because the entire Sermon on the Mount is within the context of the coming reign of God and his kingdom. The whole Sermon on the Mount is a call to live a certain way, both for the flourishing of this life and the life to come. That's why the wide gate and the narrow gate speak of both life and destruction as the two ends of each gate. So what Jesus is ultimately saying here is that the one who hears his words and does them is the one who will still be standing when the floods of God's divine judgment come. Whereas those who hear his words and do not do them, they will fall when the floods of God's divine judgment come. As Jesus says in verse 27, and great was the fall of it. Judgment is coming. The Bible everywhere speaks of it. 
not just in the old, but also in the new. And what differentiates those who can endure it and those who can't is the hearing of Jesus' words and doing them. This is who the wise are and who the foolish are. Which one are you? Which one are you? Now, I want to make a few observations from this passage that I think will be helpful to all of us. The first thing that I want us to observe is that faith, faith that doesn't produce obedience to the will of Jesus is not faith. I said what allows the wise to stand in the face of judgment versus the foolish who are destroyed is the result of those who hear the words of Jesus and do them in contrast to those who don't. And you may be thinking, I thought what differentiates those who are able to stand through the judgment and those who don't is faith. Which one is it? Is it faith or is it doing the words of Jesus? It is faith. But what is true faith? True faith, true, saving, redemptive faith always leads to a following after Jesus. Always. Jesus said in John 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. In other words, you can identify the sheep by not just the fact they hear his voice, but by the fact that they follow him. This is almost the exact same thing that Jesus says here about the wise builder. The wise man is the one who hears his words and does him, does them. My sheep are those who hear my voice and follow me. Faith that does not lead to obedience to Jesus and his ways is not saving faith. This is the same thing that James articulates in in James chapter 2. I I encourage you to turn there. James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. Look at what James says. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Now that's a rhetorical question. And the answer, of course, is no. Faith that has no works cannot save a single person on the face of this earth. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. That is, it's not faith. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. And I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Which means this, I've had conversations with people who say, yeah, I believe in Jesus. I believe in Jesus. Okay, well that means you have a faith that is on par with the demonic realm. Praise God. 
At least they shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, this is verse 20, that faith apart from works is useless? It's useless. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. It's interesting, when you go to the, to the pillar of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, and it says, by faith, by faith, by faith, what is it that we see? We see them doing they hear God, or God speaks to them, and they respond in faith. By faith, Noah built the ark. He acted. He took God's word. He heard it, and he acted upon it. Even the Apostle Paul articulates the same idea in his letter to the Romans. This incredible letter where Paul articulates that we're justified by faith and not works also begins and ends his letter with this understanding of a faith that produces obedience. So in Romans chapter 1, 1 to 5, Paul begins his letter by saying this, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we receive grace and apostleship. Now here's the question. Why did Paul receive grace and apostleship? This is what he says. To bring about the obedience of faith. To bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations. And then at the end of Romans, at the, the last thing Paul says in Romans chapter 16, verses 25 to 27, he says this, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God. So why has God made this mystery of the gospel known? Why? To bring about the obedience of faith. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. You see, true saving faith produces within a person the obedience of faith. True saving faith leads to hearing Jesus' words and doing those words. That's why the scriptures in several places speak about us being judged for what we have done. So how do you know that you truly believe Jesus' words? Well, one... You strive by the Spirit of God to live by them. 
You desire to live by them. It's like the illustration I used several weeks ago in regards to the man at sea in his rowboat. He can't see the land ahead of him, but he believes that there is land ahead of him. Now, how do we determine that he actually believes there's land? He rows. He rows. His rowing is proof that he really believes there's land ahead of him. And if he doesn't row, it's proof that he doesn't really believe there's land ahead of him, despite what he may say he believes. Faith that doesn't produce obedience to the will of Jesus is not faith. Or to put it in the positive, true faith produces obedience to the voice and ways of Jesus. Now, I'm not saying perfect obedience. I believe my little two-year-old is obedient, but that doesn't mean she's always obedient. She struggles with obedience just as I struggle with obedience to the Lord. The second observation I want us to see is that wisdom here, according to Jesus, is not intelligence, nor is foolishness a lack of intelligence. Wisdom is not intelligence, and foolishness is not a lack of intelligence. You can be incredibly smart and still be a fool. You may be intellectually sharp, unbelievably intelligent, the smartest person in the room, but if you disregard Jesus' ways, you're a fool no matter how smart you may be. But it's also true that you may not be the sharpest tool in the tool shed. You may not be all that intelligent or smart, but if you follow Jesus' words, you're wise no matter how, in, how much intelligence you lack. What makes someone wise isn't one's intelligence. What makes someone wise is whether or not they follow Jesus and his ways. The wise man is the one who hears his words and does them. And this is why if you're 18 years old and you follow Jesus, you can be wiser than your professor who disregards Jesus. Because the scriptures tell us the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Now the last observation I want us to see is the similarities and dissimilarities between the wise and the foolish. The similarities and dissimilarities between the foolish and and the wise. In this parable, there are both similarities and dissimilarities between the foolish and the wise, which can make it difficult to discern who the wise and the foolish are. So what are the similarities and dissimilarities? Well, for one, both the wise and the foolish build a house. It's not as though the foolish don't build. No, no, no. They build a home just like the wise do. So if, if you were to see each, other, each of their homes, you probably wouldn't know there was any difference. The difference resides in the part of the home that is unseen. The foundation of the home. And this goes back to the main theme of the Sermon on the Mount. It's the internal of the person, not the external, that matters before God. 
It's the part of that, that the human eye can't see that truly determines whether or not one is walking in the ways of righteousness and virtue. You can't determine who is righteous based upon one's external obedience to the law, but rather one's internal obedience to the law. Secondly, both the wise and the foolish experience the storms of life. Both the wise and the foolish experience the storms of life. Both the wise and the foolish experience the hardships of this world. Another way to put it, both the righteous and the wicked suffer in this world. You are not exempt from the pains and horrors of this life because you follow Jesus. To live in this world is to suffer whether you're wise or foolish, whether you're righteous or unrighteous, that both houses are beaten by the storm. You see, I really believe one of the problems people have in their suffering is due to false expectations. So many of us tend to think that suffering shouldn't be the norm in this world, and that if it does come to us, it should be temporary and short-lived. Why? Why do we believe that? Because when I see the Bible, and when I look at human history, I see the opposite. We should be surprised that we're not suffering in this fallen world. To live in this fallen world is to suffer, and we will all suffer in different ways. And the sooner you begin to understand this and embrace this, the sooner, the sooner it will help you face your suffering. See, if I went into pastoral ministry with the expectation that it would be easy, I can promise you I wouldn't finish in it. I have a real expectation that pastoral ministry is going to be painful and at times hard, and that actually helps prepare me for the pain and the difficulty. See, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus does not remotely promise relief from suffering for his followers. He doesn't. What he tells them is that even in the midst of of the storm, they can live the virtuous, flourishing whole life. Remember, he says that his way is the hard way. Both the wise and the foolish experience the storms of life. Do not believe that you should be exempt. Another similarity is that both the wise and foolish hear the words of Jesus. They both hear the words of Jesus. This is important. You can't determine who is wise or foolish based upon who is here Sunday morning hearing the words of Jesus. You can't determine who is wise or foolish based upon how eager or passionate someone is in regards to hearing the words of Jesus. 
What distinguishes the wise from the foolish isn't how attentive either group is to hearing Jesus' words. You can be extremely attentive to Jesus' words and still be a fool. What distinguishes the wise from the foolish is not one's ability to hear, not even one's appetite for hearing, but rather how one responds to what they hear. It doesn't matter whether you love to hear God's word preach. What matters is whether you live according to what has been preached. One of the most distressing passages for a preacher is found in Ezekiel 33, verses 30 to 33. God tells Ezekiel that the people of Israel will come to hear him preach. They want to hear a word from the Lord, but God tells him, even though they come to hear, they won't do it. They want to hear a word from the Lord, but they won't do it. In fact, he tells Ezekiel, they will even come to be entertained by his ability to preach. But they won't remotely live by what they've heard. This is what God says to Ezekiel. As for you, son of man, your people who talk together about you by the walls and at the doors of the houses say to one another, each to his brother, come and hear what the word is that comes from the Lord. And they come to you as people come and they sit before you as my people and they hear what you say, but they will not do it. Isn't that terrifying? They come. They come and they sit and they listen to Ezekiel. They want to hear it. But they don't do it. For with lustful talk in their mouths, they act. Their heart is set on their gain. And behold, you are to them, listen to this. You are to them like one who sings lustful songs with a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument. That is, they're entertained by you, Ezekiel. Man, they think you're an incredible orator. For they hear what you say, but they will not do it. That's terrifying. There will be people on the day of God's judgment whom God will say, you loved hearing my word preached. You were entertained by my word being preached. But you did not obey my word. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And God forbid that this ever be true of any of us at Royal York. Both the wise and the foolish hear Jesus' words might even enjoy hearing Jesus' words. But what distinguishes the wise and the foolish is obedience to Jesus' words. In closing, I want to ask some very important questions to us all. I'm ending off this series on the Sermon on the Mount, and I want to leave you with some important questions and a few exhortations. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, and and maybe you've been coming throughout this series on the Sermon on the Mount, my question for you is this. Are you going to be wise 
and follow Jesus and his ways that lead to everlasting life? Or are you going to be a fool and disregard him and his ways that lead to everlasting misery? This is what is set before you. Will you build your house upon the rock, Christ himself, that solid foundation? Or will you go your own way and build your life upon something that cannot stand against the storms of life and the storm of judgment? Those of you in high school, what about you? You have two options, whether you realize it or not. You can enter the wide gate, the ways of this world, but it will lead to your destruction. Or you can enter the narrow gate that leads to life. What will you do? I plead with you, enter the narrow gate. I've been in high school. I know what it was like. And I can promise you, Following Jesus is way better than following the crowds. You can continue to hear Jesus' words and disregard them, or you can hear Jesus' words and begin to follow him. Those are the only two options. And my plea to you is, choose this day whom you will serve. Now to my brothers and sisters in the Lord. Those of us who are followers of Jesus. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is presenting a way of life that is meant to make us whole, virtuous, flourishing people in this life and in the life to come. And my question for you is this. According to what Jesus has taught in the Sermon on the Mount, are you truly flourishing? Are you truly flourishing? And I'm not saying that means life is easy. No, no. Remember, Jesus' way is the hard way. But are you flourishing? Let me be frank. Some of us have had difficulties in life, and I don't want to downplay that whatsoever. Some of us are suffering horrifically because of things that have happened, and I will never downplay that. I don't ever want you to hear that from me. But let me say this. Some of us are not flourishing as followers of Jesus because despite being a follower of Jesus, you are living foolishly as a Christian. If you're not flourishing, look to your lifestyle and your choices and your habits and begin asking yourself, what do I need to change? Some of us have awful habits and you wonder why you're not flourishing. Are you joyless? What are you consuming throughout your day? Are you in debt? How are you foolishly spending your money? Are you weighed down by depression? How late are you going to bed? How much news media are you consuming? And I'm not saying that that means that that, you just got to clean it up and you're done with your depression. No, no, no. But what I am asking you to do is to examine your decisions and your choices in your life and ask how that may be impacting how you're not flourishing. Are you angry? How much cultural issues and politics are you 
consuming. Our choices matter. Our habits matter for the state of our souls. Some of us have one foot in the world and the other in the kingdom of Jesus. And you will never flourish like that. And Jesus will only for so long tolerate such a thing. Get real with Jesus this morning. Look at your life and ask yourself, am I flourishing in the way that Jesus wants me to flourish? And last thing I want to ask is this. Since we started this series in the Sermon on the Mount, since we started this series in the Sermon on the Mount, what have you actually done in taking action to live according to Jesus' teaching? What have you actually done? Like, if you've changed nothing since we began this series, then here's a really important question. Are you the wise one or the foolish one? And I hope and pray that each of us here today would not only hear Jesus' words, but begin living by them. Let's pray. Father, we ask one thing of you this morning. Help us to live according to your words so that you would be glorified and that we would flourish as your people even in the midst of the storm. We pray this in Jesus' name.